Um, since um, this is a study retreat, it's time for an exam. And um, the exam is, um, is uh, for you to tell me if this quote comes from a Buddhist teacher. And if so, what tradition? Okay? You have to trick the practitioners into believing that content isn't important and that it looks after itself or they never get anywhere. It's the same kind of trick you use when you tell them that they are not their imaginations, that their imaginations have nothing to do with them and that they're in no way responsible for what their mind gives them. In the end, they learn how to abandon control while at the same time they exercise control. They begin to understand that everything is just a shell. You have to misdirect people to absolve them of responsibility. Then much later, they become strong enough to resume the responsibility themselves. By that time, they have a more truthful concept of what they are. So? here. Ajahn Shah. F. (laughs) It's really risky to come to Spirit Rock. Someone else could. A Zen teacher. F. Me. That's good. <laughs> Trick question. No. Sorry? An art process. Goenka. Mao? <laughs> That's interesting. I was thinking of referring to Stalin later today, so we're in that direction. Milton Erickson. Okay, it's an improv teacher by the name of Johnson. So I thought it was kind of nice. And uh, (laughs) you know, kind of pointed to some of these things, themes of the week, and and also uh, as we get into the Mahayana. Today's topic is emptiness in the Mahayana. And um, I wrote a a um, master's thesis. On a, on a Mahayana Tantric text. And um, in the epilogue of that thesis, I quoted this because it seemed to um, express some of the understandings that are coming through in, in uh, Indian Tantric Buddhism. So, um, So, you know, I, I enjoyed very much uh, Guy's talk this morning. I thought he did a fantastic job and a, a very comprehensively difficult topic. And, um, and I was kind of touched by it uh, um, because I felt reminded that uh, this is a practice tradition down through the centuries. And that as people have practiced, engaged, and explored their minds, explored their practice, they've tried to the best of their ability to try to 
describe it, give expression to it, understanding to it. And down through the centuries, they've, they've whatever causes and conditions, they've, they've tried to their be- very best to give expression to something. Maybe that's very hard to express. But the, I felt kind of part of what I was, I was touched this morning was to feel, I felt kind of the lineage of practitioners. Guy's a practitioner, who's kind of speaking f- very much, I think, from his contact with his practice and uh, trying to give expression to it and make sense of it f- through the tradition. And, and, um, and I think it's important to remember we're talking about a practice lineage, not a philosophy. And um, so in that uh, line, I thought I might go back, before doing the Mahayana, go back to the early tradition uh, by first reading a story, a little one from this book, and then, then back further. A visiting monk once asked the abbess, how would I know if I'm wasting my time? The abbess replied, if you are suffering. Guy pointed out a few nights ago that uh, the Mahayana doesn't have a monopoly on emptiness. Uh, There's historical reasons why uh, Mahayana emphasizes it more. It's in their press releases. Whereas uh, uh, Theravada, you know, we kind of keep it kind of quiet that we have it. It's, it's partly because it's understood in Theravada to really be something that arises out of practice, usually deep practice. And so, um, and so we wait for that to happen kind of on its own through practice. And then we talk about it or point to it to people. That's historically how it's been. Whereas for Mahayana, often uh, in some schools of Mahayana, um, it's, such, it's such an important view or orientation that they want people to have that orientation and understanding right at the beginning to set the stage for how even beginners are engaging in their practice. Um, but it's there, you know, the difference between the emptiness teachings of the Theravada, empty teaching of the Mahayana, at the core, at the foundation of both, are very similar to each other. The Mahayana, however, kind of went to town on this idea and over the centuries, because it became increasingly important, there became a wide range of interpretations uh, of what the emptiness means. And, um, and not only were, uh, some of the interpretations were looked upon it very favorably, and some Mahayana uh, schools actually looked on the emptiness philosophy unfavorably. But even so, there, even, even people looked on it favorably, there were many interpretations, and then you get into Tantric Buddhism, and they have a whole different kind of I don't know if take on emptiness, well, it kind of a um, uh, func- different function, not different understanding, but different function that emptiness uh, plays out in the practitioner's lives. But the foundation, it goes back to the beginning of Buddhism, and you find similar teachings uh, that are maybe not explicitly talking about emptiness, but implicitly saying the same thing. But what you find very clear in the early tradition is when it's talking about uh, practice and talking about its deep practice, it's almost always doing it from the point of view of letting go. Letting go of clinging, letting go of grasping. And, um, and that takes precedent over views, that takes precedent over knowledge, over understanding, over explanations. It um, uh, takes precedence, you know, it's just to let go in a very, very deep way 
That's where the freedom is found. And so you find in the early tradition some, uh, you know, I think somewhat radical teaching sometimes around this. And some of this has to do with how to hold views, uh, how to hold different uh, tenets, different belief systems that people have. And, um, and, and there's this kind of, almost a kind of an anti-view streak. That it's not through views, it's not through a philosophy, belief system, that you're going to become free. So here is um, the Buddha. Having views about what is highest, a person makes these the best in the world and calls all others inferior. As such, they have not gone beyond quarreling. When one sees personal advantage in things seen, heard, and thought out, or in precepts and religious observances, and then grasps at these, one sees all else as inferior. What one relies on, so to see all else as inferior, is an entanglement, say those who are skilled. A practitioner should, therefore, not depend on things seen, heard, or thought out, or on precepts and religious observances. What's left? Not depend on things seen, heard, thought out, my brilliant rational mind. I can't rely on that. Nor should they make up views in the world by means of knowledge, precepts, and religious observances. Nor should they think of themselves inferior or superior to others. And they, sh- and they should not take themselves as equal. What else is left? <laughs> it's a very interesting point. If you're not supposed to see yourself as inferior to others or superior to others, and not equal to others, what's left? What's left is you don't play the comparison game. You, you don't, you're not in, you know, you don't, you know, you just are. Without Letting go of what is grasped, the person free of clinging doesn't depend on knowledge or follow dissenting factions or fall back on any kind of view. For those who are not inclined to either side of becoming or non-becoming, or here or the next world, there exists nothing to get entrenched in when, they, when considering the doctrines others grasp. Here, they have not even the slightest preconceived concepts in regard to what is seen, heard, or thought out. How in this world could one categorize the person who does not take hold of views. For those who do not take hold of views, do not construct, prefer, or take up any doctrines. A Brahmin not led by precepts or religious observances, who has gone beyond, who is thus, does not rely on belief. Does not rely on belief. So, it's one thing to understand and to let go of clinging to self. But even with not much selfing going on, sometimes the mind can also be reaching out to grasp onto ideas and thoughts and beliefs. And it's a little bit of a irony or paradox or irritation to be taking this 
subject of emptiness, where you're, you know, that we're pointing to let go, let go. And then you're trying to understand, understand. <laughs> what are they trying to say? <laughs> what are they really saying there? But, you know, really, it's, it's a teaching pointing to letting go. And, um, and how deeply can we let go? And I think that, you know, there's this kind of subtle, maybe not so subtle, clinging to ideas, thoughts, what we think out, concepts. We reach forward for the next thing, or we pull back from the next thing we're thinking about, or anything. So how deep can that letting go be, is the challenge. And here, there's this wonderful statement at the end. It's a, it's a kind of word that is so ordinary, maybe, or so unusual, and so non-technical, that it tends to get overlooked until you realize that this word appears uh, as a kind of a stream running through Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and it shouldn't be ignored, even though it's often has been. It says, um, in the last, that last verse, it says, um, so those who don't hold to views, they do not construct, prefer, or take up any doctrines. Such a person is not led by precepts or religious observances. Such a person has gone beyond. Such a person is one who is thus. The word thus, just thus, you know, what does that mean? That, you know, can you give me a technical definition of thus? It's like thus, like such. Sometimes it's translated as thusness or suchness. And, um, you know, you try to talk about what is reality? What is this experience, this empty world of ours? And sometimes it's hard to actually put words, concepts, especially when, when words are nouns. And we tend to see things as processes. Things, because they're empty, they can't really be nouns. They can't be solid, fixed things. They're verbs, they're processes, the things are unfolding and moving all the time. And what is this move, moving, occurring reality that we're in? That we, you know, that just and so there's something very profound calling it thus. I think it was maybe a guy who pointed out that the, uh, the Buddha, the way he, Buddha referred to himself, he didn't say, hey, I'm Sid, Siddhartha, you know. <laughs> uh, he didn't call himself Buddha. Uh, he called himself um, Tathagata. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, probably the best translation of that is, um, the, one who is the one who is thus. The one who is thus. So I want to do a little um, show and tell, a teaching for you. Some of you have seen me do this before. That has to do with holding up a flower. And um, there's a long lineage, especially in Zen, teaching on holding up flowers. And uh, so you're supposed to look at the flower and just appreciate the flower, the flower in and of itself, the way it is. It's a pretty flower. It is what it is. And you try to put away your thoughts, what in the world is Gil doing? You know, this must be some profound thing about opening the petals and blossoming. And, you know, what is, you know, what's the symbolic meaning of the flower? And forget all that. There's nothing symbolic here. It's just a flower. Just a flower in and of itself. But then, I'll, I can do something interesting. Is I pick this other flower up. And I hold it next to it. And now something new has occurred. 
which we couldn't have said before. What we can say now is that flower in my left hand is the big flower, the large flower, and the flower in my right hand is the small one. Right? Big, small. So now watch this. This is magic. And still, you know, a guy wants us to see the magic trick so we get disenchanted. So I'm going to let you really see how it's done. So once and for all, you'll be disenchanted. Not with this trick, but with the tricks you do. Because you're tricksters too. So, now right, big, small. You got that? No, No doubt about that, right? So, right? Which one's the big one now? (laughs) Big, small. So big and small does not reside in the flower, inherently in the flower. The flower by itself is thus. The suchness of the flower is just like this. But we can compare it to other flowers, to other things, to many things. But the flower is not a comparison. The flower just is. Much of human suffering belongs to the realm of comparative thinking, the concepts we, concepts we can make. So, you know, I'm taller, I'm shorter, I'm bigger, I'm thinner, I'm, my hair is this, you know, long, thin, whatever it might be, or my nose, my butt, you know, my clothes, my hairline, uh, my intelligence, my kindness, my beauty, you know, it's all, we, you know, it's my skill, there's... We, we're often comparing it ourselves to other people. And I know that I've suffered on retreat comparing myself to the person sitting near me because they were sitting so amazingly still. And I wasn't sitting still enough. But what if, what if we just leave ourselves alone from, and don't compare? Comparison doesn't exist inherently in anything. It's a, it's a product of the mind and concepts. And part of, the, part of what we try to do in meditation is to see, see through the conceptual mind that lives in comparisons and perhaps if we're lucky, be able to put it to rest and experience ourselves or experience reality as it is. What, what's called the suchness, the thusness of how things are. And, um, and to become someone who's thus whatever that is. Just, like you don't have to be anything. It means you don't have to be anything for anybody. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to apologize to anybody. You don't have to compare yourself to who you were in the past or who you think you might be in the future. In this moment, it's just us. What a relief just to be thus. And then to, and then to watch the conceptual mind come in and start making comparisons to all kinds of things and then perhaps feel how we get imbalanced, or how we get caught up, or how we start suffering because of it. So, the early tradition focused a lot on just letting go, and emphasized that over and over again. And then the teachings of not-self, the teaching of emptiness, the teaching of impermanence, are all meant to be encouragements, or mirrors, or supports to help us to see that the things that we cling to aren't really worth clinging to, or maybe not even possible to cling to, was to help us with this releasing movement, 
so we can just be in the suchness of how things are. So if you, if you turn now to um, a quote 61. It's a quote by a very famous um, Mahayana, Indian Mahayana uh, philosopher, commentator, very important for Tibetan Buddhism, named Chandra Chandra Kirti. And here he's writing about the emptiness a little bit. Even while an ordinary being, if upon hearing of emptiness, great joy arises within again and again, the eyes moisten with tears of great joy, and the hairs of the body stand on end. Such a person has the seed of the mind of complete of a complete Buddha. He or she is a vessel for teachings on thusness, and ultimate truth should be taught to him or her. After that, good qualities will grow in that person. So, Sally Guy and I haven't yet not witnessed any of you this level of tears of joy and <laughs> your hair standing up and you know you know maybe we're still learning how to teach this we haven't really conveyed how radical and profound revolutionary this teaching and emptiness really is it really is it really gives tremendous hope to the possibility of freedom of liberation But that person then is a vessel for the teachings on thusness. Here you see that word again, thus. Teachings on the world as it exists, you as you exist, without any comparisons, without any overlay of concepts and ideas. What is that? Can you even conceive of yourself without any concepts? So then we have the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra is probably the most famous of the Mahayana Sutras. And not only is it famous, but it's also one of the most famous um, expressions of the emptiness teaching. And um, it's a very interesting text for many reasons. I, as, as I mentioned one evening here, I gave a copy of it to my teacher in Burma, Pandita. And he then the next day gave a Dharma talk on this talk, on, this talk, on the text. And uh, he was very happy with it. He thought it was basically teaching straight vipassana uh, as, he, as he understood it. He left out the part about Avalokiteshvara, but the, the, the core part of it here. And, um, but then I had a professor in uh, graduate school a Buddhist professor, who uh, scholar of Japanese Buddhism, and he did a, um, a uh, academic article that basically said that the Heart Sutra has historically functioned like an ink blot, where people read into it whatever they like, and he then he proceeded to explain the tremendous diversity of teachings people have pulled out of this text. And if you listen to any one teacher, they'll say, this is the way it is. 
but there's no essence. There's no inherent nature in the Heart Sutra. It's empty. And, um, and that's where he said, that there was a, he, he points out that there was a, in Japan, there was someone who wrote a, how the Heart Sutra was, real, was a, kind of a communist manifesto and, and qu- quoted uh, Stalin. And then someone else wrote how the Heart Sutra was an anti-communist manifesto to show you how, r- how far afield it gets. You know, the, the, it's, a, it's because it's so important in some of these Asian cultures like Japan, the Heart Sutra is, you know, gets, gets worked over many, many ways. But I, I love the Heart Sutra beginning with Avalokiteshvara because Avalokiteshvara is the, meant to be the embodiment, personification of compassion. And so we're about to delve into the world of, the, of emptiness. <clears throat> but first, compassion is evoked. As if the, the reason for the teachings that are being, being given is out of compassion for the suffering of the world. And sometimes if you get too far into the emptiness, you sometimes lose sight of that this is really meant, again, to be something to help us in our life and to practice. <clears throat> so practicing deeply the prajna paramita, usually translated as the perfection of wisdom or perfect wisdom. I actually prefer translating prajna as insight because in my mind, wisdom implies like some kind of knowledge or some kind of understanding that you, you can acquire and then you can apply it and bring it with you in life as you go about things. Uh, but insight is much more immediate. You either see or you don't see. And so uh, it's just kind of, we're talking about something immediate where you actually see directly into the nature of things as opposed to some understanding. That's why I like insight. When practicing deeply the perfection of insight, perceive that all five aggregates are empty. So this is a Mahayana text, right? Have you heard this before? Right, this is what the early tradition, the Buddha taught this as well as we've we've seen here this week. And by seeing that they are empty, was released from all suffering. That's a powerful statement. There's something about seeing deeply into the aggregates, seeing deeply into the nature of how we experience our life, that in seeing it with this insight, we're freed of suffering. The Mahayana, the Prajnaparamita kind of literature tends to then interpret or say that what the perfection of insight is, is it's the kind of insight, the seeing into things that in no way clings to what's there. Doesn't take up, doesn't hold on, doesn't land on things, doesn't take a stand anywhere, doesn't appropriate whatever is being attended to or seen. And it's that non-clinging, that non-appropriation that uh, is what's you know, synonymous with ending of suffering. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Water does not differ from wetness. Wetness, in a sense, doesn't differ from water. Uh, these two are so interconnected, intertwined, like the example that Guy did of holding up the bell, that the roundness and the color you know, go together in that, in that bell. That uh, uh, in this particular approach to emptiness, emptiness is not separate from anything. It's a characteristic of things. And so if you want to, so you don't want to dismiss anything. You don't deny anything and say that's not real. It has a certain kind of, certain kind of maybe un- 
reality. We're not quite sure what kind, but it has a certain kind of reality. But whatever it is, it's also empty. Empty of self. Empty of some inherently abiding, permanent essence. Empty means that it's a process. It's moving. It's flowing. Um, in a sense. <clears throat> form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. So again, emphasizing these two are inseparable, these two things. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. Really driving this home. And sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciences are also like this. So these are the five aggregates. So I chanted the sutra for a long time in my Zen career. And as a new Zen student, I used to chant this every day without a clue what the aggregates were. (laughs) And because they were empty, and then later on it says, you know, no form, you know, all these things are not, not, not. I kind of concluded, well, I didn't have to know what they were. (laughs) 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 They were empty. So this was a misunderstanding of the whole whole sutra and emptiness for sure, but it's easy to kind of take it the wrong direction. And so it wasn't until I encountered the Theravada that, I, what, these are real teachings? The aggregates are real things that you just learn about? And, <laughs> and uh, so then the, kind of that world opened up for me in a different way. It's a very penetrating analysis of every possible thing that you could possibly experience. That's what the aggregates are. And to see it as empty, it's very, very uh, meaningful. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. Now, now this is where the first part is pretty standard Buddhism, from what you see the early tradition. But now it gets more interpretive. And this is where people start kind of going, taking this uh, text in different directions. And that's because uh, the, the Buddhist Mahayana tradition has different interpretations of the word emptiness. And um, as I, we pointed out earlier, in the Theravada tradition, the Pali Suttas, there's two primary meanings of emptiness. One is the emptiness has to do with that understanding that aggregates and other things are empty. The other is, as a noun kind of, is it refers to a particular state of the mind when it's empty of some things. So very different meanings of empty. So, so uh, when the mind is, and the most, most uh, significant thing that the mind can be empty of is greed, hate, and delusion. And that, as we saw, it refers to the unsurpassed emptiness. And so sometimes nirvana, the experience of nirvana, is considered synonymous with emptiness which I think was not with Buddhadasa's quote guy also we saw earlier and um, so here what's happening is the sutra is beginning to slide into or confusing or overlapping two different meanings of emptiness there's one way of understanding the text first it was more the you know empty of self and now it's going into an experiential quality of the mind being empty and it's, not, it's very difficult to see, unless you've read a lot of these sutras, a lot of this perfection wisdom literature, that this is what's going on. But all, all dharmas are marked by emptiness, 
marked by some quality of nirvana, of liberation, of freedom itself, of release. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. I'm not going to go into the... This is interesting why they would say this. I think it's going to, time is limited. I'm not going to go into this. Things just are. Therefore, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no, form, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight until no realm of mind consciousness. It's great to read this every, to chant this every day. You know, it does kind of, kind of mind stopping for me. No eyes, no. What do they mean? You know, it's kind of like, what is this supposed to be? And um, you know, and so just it kind of helped me, kind of just stop my mind when I chanted it. It's repetitive. No, no, no. Was um, kind of had a kind of a kind of a powerful influence in kind of stilling the mind, opening the mind, <clears throat> dropping concepts. It's kind of. But no form, no sensations, no perceptions, no formations, no consciousness. What does that mean? Given emptiness. And there's two primary interpretations. One is that since they have no essence, there's nothing essentially there. So because there's nothing essentially there, they're not there. In any case, the word form is just a, 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 a gross concept. And concepts aren't really there. Just like um, another interpretation is that given emptiness, given the mind which is liberated, free of, free of greed, hate and delusion, free, emptied itself of concepts, there is no then seeing form, sensations, perceptions, uh, form, sensations, perceptions, formations, consciousness and so forth. It gets more... Um, you know, it goes on, says there's neither ignorance nor the extinction of the ignorance. And then what it does here with the uh, three dots, it goes through the 12-fold chain of dependent origination. So these, you know, core teachings that are here in the early tradition are here just kind of dismissed in a certain kind of way. They don't, they're not there, they're not there, not there. No, 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 no. Um, nor extinction of old age. And then the Four Noble Truths. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. No knowledge and no attainment. So I mean, that's what isn't that all what it's all about? The path to attainment, to liberation. There is even attainment itself. The Mahayana like to say, Nirvana itself has no essence. Is empty. And in some ways, maybe it's just a concept. And when you're freed of all concepts, when the mind is really free, abiding in emptiness. It doesn't need to be any, uh, attain anything, but from that perspective, there is no attainment nor non-attainment. Things are just thus, like this. With nothing to attain, the Bodhisattva reply, relies on prajna paramita. With nothing to attain, it's kind of a radical thing. Why would you practice if there's nothing to attain? Could you kind of shift your perspective? and practice as if there's nothing to attain. What would it take? Or from what perspective are you, would it be deeply meaningful not to focus on attaining anything? There's no need to attain anything if you're abiding in prajna paramita. If you're abiding 
in this empty, this view of emptiness, abiding in this the mind that doesn't cling, the mind that doesn't appropriate, the mind that doesn't um, hold on to anything, settle anything, and the mind that can see right through all the concepts we live by, all the comparative thinking. We, we, we're, we're fin- all of us are artists who mostly paint our reality with concepts. We project all the time. And when all those projections drop, the idea of attainment has no meaning. There's no need for it. Just Things are just thus. The Bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance there is no fear. Beyond all inverted views one realizes nirvana. Inverted here is uh, the inverted views are to see things as being permanent, as having self, and as providing lasting happiness. And those are kinds of inverted because actually there's nothing which is permanent, there's nothing which really qualifies as a self, and there's nothing which can provide this lasting happiness. All Buddhas of past, present, and future rely on prajna paramita, and thereby, thereby attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening. Therefore, know the prajna paramita. So now, now the text is going to shift again. So you have to kind of watch this amazing shift. So early on, it seems like this great philosophy, great understanding, great insight, penetrating insight into the nature of reality. It's all empty. And you just have to see into the emptiness of it, abide in this tremendous insight, this non-attached insight, and you'll attain awakening. Therefore, know the Prajnaparamita as the great miraculous mantra. What are we doing with a mantra suddenly? <laughs> Mantra mantra is kind of magical. The great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra, which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Therefore, we, pro- we proclaim the Prajna Paramita mantra, the mantra that says, Gate, gate, paragate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha. Translated into English, gone, gone, gone beyond gone completely beyond. Awake. Hallelujah. <laughs> so we, what's this calling on this mantra at the end? What's that going, what's going on here? The word heart, the heart of the great perfect, perfect, perfect wisdom sutra, one of the meanings, that, and the meaning that was originally intended for this in the ancient India, was it meant a... Um, an incantation, a dharani, a mantra. We tend to think it means the core teaching. But in fact, this text has mostly been used as a, as a liturgy, as a mantra, as an incantation. Um, mostly it's never been, like it goes to Japan, uh, they, don't, they didn't translate it because they believed in the efficacy of the original language and words. And so they chanted this uh, uh, transliteration of what you know of the text and they never translated the uh, still to this day they don't translate the sanskrit mantra because sanskrit the mantra in sanskrit has this primordial 
value of primordial sound of the universe that has you know power and magic in it. So, um, so when I was in the Zen monastery in Japan, uh, there was a young uh, Zen priest who was in there for training. He'd come from a very rural part of Japan. And uh, he started telling me about the ghost he encountered one night at his monastery, his temple, home temple. I said, what did you do? I asked him. I chanted the Heart Sutra. And the, and the ghost went away. And so this use of the Heart Sutra as for magic has been a big part, uh, or we, I call it magic, for the, you know, for protection, as a protective uh, thing. It's been a very big part of uh, much of East Asian Buddhism. And it seems kind of, to me, it always sets kind of a strange juxtaposition between what, can, in a sense, looks like this kind of rarefied kind of philosophy, which you think stands on its own, and then magic or supernatural world that comes into play. One of the greatest Chinese um, philosophers of emptiness was a man named Xuanzang famous for his pilgrimage to India. And he was um, captured by bandits who were going to execute him. They led him off to be executed. And they, did, they didn't. That's why he could write about it later. But they, they led him off to be ex- execute him. And um, so, you, you know, you think that if emptiness is so profound and meaningful and what's liberating, that on his there on the execution block, that he would call upon emptiness. He would abide in emptiness. He would go to emptiness. It's not what he did. He prayed to Maitreya Buddha. He prayed to this other Buddha that's going to come in the future, that abides currently in a heavenly realm called Tusita. And again, so for me, at least my kind of Western rational mind, it's, it's such a strong juxtaposition between the emptiness, which seems to be this kind of direct pointing to the nature of reality, kind of, and then this kind of supernatural world that comes into play. So this is not too much of a, this is, this is kind of one of, the thing, one of the interesting things that starts happening in the Mahayana. It gets, in, it gets interspersed in some areas with the emptiness teaching. So um, um, Nagarjuna, the great philosopher of emptiness, uh, adopted by the Mahayana as their own, he um, uh, really emphasized that nothing whatsoever has inherent existence, therefore it's empty. But then people try to understand, what is he really talking about? Because one of the powerful things he says, and one of the powerful things he said was, was basically that um, in his famous treatise was he refuted everybody else's views, showed how they, were, they didn't stand up to scrutiny. But then people, uh, uh, he, uh, the big argument, the big discussion is, does he offer any views of his own? And there was a strong school of thought that says, no, he didn't offer any views of his own. All he did was take the, pull the rug out from underneath other people's views. Because uh, having a view of anything is not the point. It gets in the way. The idea is not to cling. And a view ob- ob- obsc- obscures Reality. And this kind of goes along with some of the things you find in this early, earliest Buddhist tradition too, where you don't rely on views. 
not through beliefs do you get liberated, but by letting go. But then, Nagarjuna, you know, interpreting Nagarjuna, some people said, yes, everything is empty, like he says. But what is this thing that's empty? You know, it must be something. I mean, otherwise it doesn't make sense to talk about it, right? What is it? And, um, and so one school of uh, philosophy was that it's empty because it's all concepts. And everything that we see is concepts. Everything we see is a projection of the mind's ideas and con- conceivings. And when you, when you take that point of view, that everything is just concepts, everything's just projections of the mind, the mind created, that uh, lended itself in certain areas of Mahayana to more magical thinking. If it's just concepts, then you can just kind of rearrange things, the concepts, you know, happily, freely, easily. There was one Western Dharma teacher in a recent book who said, kind of took this to extreme, I think. He said something like, um, you know, we, we all live in these uh, uh, collective consensus and we're stuck by the collective consensus of how reality is. And there's actually nothing that stops us from uh, walking up the walls and across the ceiling, upside down. Because, you know, gravity is just a collective consensus. And if we could just kind of break through, you know, break out of that collective kind of conceptualization that we've all agreed to, and we could just happily walk up the, the wall. So, you know, I haven't seen anything like that. So it's a little bit foreign idea, this kind of thinking to me, at least. Maybe I'm stuck in the collective consensus. But uh, I think this kind of thinking that it's all concepts then lends itself to a certain kind of uh, magical thinking about how the world can be rearranged magically or through concepts and ideas. And sometimes it's a little bit unusual uh, the way that that kind of emptiness teaching. Everything's empty, so therefore it's malleable and changeable and it's all concepts, so it's all can be changed by how the mind sees it and does it. Um, And if, if everything is concept, then what is it that creates the concepts? What is it that registers the concepts? And this points back to Guy's talk. And then there's this uh, Chitta Matra idea that, well, everything is empty, everything is concept, except the mind. And the mind has some kind of different kind of reality than all these concepts. The one mind, the full mind, the Buddha mind, something. Then there was another whole direction which said, yes, mostly we're, we're, we're projecting our concepts onto reality, but reality isn't just the product of, of, of the mind. But we do project all these ideas of permanence and concepts, ideas on the reality. But behind the concepts, there's a true reality out there. And that true reality is called the Dharmadhatu, or the Dharmakaya, which is the playground of the Buddhas. And so there was a whole kind of Buddhology that created to describe what this, so Guy talked this morning about the Tagatagarbha, the Buddha nature, which goes in, in a sense, to the mind. And then there was a Dharmakaya teaching was that goes out into the nature of reality. And the Dharmakaya 
is uh, the playground of all the Buddhas, which is nice. But the, 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 the real difference, one of the differences between the Mahayana and the earlier tradition is not around the teaching of emptiness, but rather has to do with the nature of what it means to be a Buddha. And the, the Mahayana developed this, uh, uh, what's called docetic idea of the Buddha, where the Buddha became almost like a god, or like a god. And in fact, some of the Mahayana sutras will say that Shakyamuni Buddha didn't really exist, but was a projection of, uh, of the cosmic Buddha's mind and for our benefit. He kind of did a little kind of holo- hologram. There was, you know, and, you know, and played out the scene of being born and leaving home and waking up and getting enlightened and dying. And no one really did all those things. It was just a projection. And there was this cosmic Buddha who's been eternal, who's never died, never been born, it's always been, resides in this heavenly realm. It's a little bit, you know, you can't quite see the, that kind of Buddha in the, in, the, in the early sutras where the Buddha was just, you know, kind of a guy. You know, not an unusual person, but he's really seen as being a human being. So th- this all kind of ties to the emptiness because as, as everything's being empty, and uh, then the, um, um, I think I mentioned this earlier, one of the strands of emptiness teaching, especially in the perfection of wisdom literature, was they insisted that everything is empty and nothing arises and passes, nothing causes anything else. And so there was no, there was kind of, kind of swept away uh, teachings on causality. And all the psychological sophistication of the earlier tradition understood the psychology of clinging and the hindrances and, and the mind and all these different things, which kind of went out the door and then, as I said a few days ago, um, then in this fantastic literature, perfectionism literature, there's this, you know, uh, in a way that's often ignored by scholars of, of emptiness, there's this uh, cosmic battle between Mara and Buddha, this cosmic Buddha, this cosmic Mara. And, and we're just kind of pawns on this larger stage of this cosmic drama going on. What does it have to do with emptiness? I think that emptiness kind of, because everything is empty and fluid, there's one of the ways I understood emptiness is that because things are empty, there was no responsibility, there was no action, nothing you can do. Now, I would say this is a misunderstanding of certainly the earlier emptiness tradition where the emptiness teaching was about taking responsibility, was realizing there are actions, there are things you can do to help you become free. uh, One of the purposes of emptiness teaching is to say, things are not fixed in any particular way. Things are there because of causes and conditions. They're dependently arisen. And you can have a role in stepping in and adjusting and changing those conditions so that you can move towards greater freedom and liberation. You can let go. You can let go deeper and deeper degrees. You can develop yourself. You can bring understanding. You can understand karma. If you remember, I think my first talk, the Dalai Lama said that before you understand emptiness, you should understand karma and causation, how these things work. And in some schools then of, of Mahayana, that was lost. Some, some areas. 
and then it was replaced by this kind of cosmic thing. And then uh, you got, came to Tantric Buddhism, and then they did a very interesting uh, shift. Uh, I don't know so much about it, but uh, it was uh, because everything is empty, um, everything is malleable and fluid. And rather than, uh, and so what's really real or what's important is not how things are, but the roles we play. How things, and so the great cosmic Buddhas, they can manifest in infinite different forms because it's all fluid, it's all magical. And they can come take a form of wrathful deities, of, of beautiful bodhisattvas of this type and that type, and it's all fluid. And what's important is the role and the functioning, not the substance. So emptiness says there's no inherent substance, so the substance is not important, but rather the functioning, the role. And so you find in some schools of Tantric Buddhism then that the practitioner uh, uh, reenacts the functioning of these deities, of these cosmic Buddhas or these bodhisattvas. And by reenacting them, you kind of become them because you become what you function, what you do. So this also, uh, that's kind of that kind of Tantric stream that it's the enactment that you become a Buddha. It's not in the insight. It's not in the, in the, um, it's not so much focusing on liberation from something, but it's, they, they say it's more important that you want to become a Buddha. And a Buddha is much more than letting go. A Buddha has tremendous powers because they're kind of, it's, it's a godlike being that has a heavenly realm that has tremendous knowledge of the past and the future and and has this huge ability to send. The descriptions of the Buddhas are, I mean, they're amazing. The, the word I learned in, in graduate school to describe the Mahayana Sutras, to describe the powers and abilities and grandeur of Buddhas, it was uh, phantasmagoric. So, how can we possibly hope to ever become a Buddha? But if, because everything is empty and fluid and malleable, you can become a Buddha by acting like a Buddha. And so you do all these rituals where you visualize yourself and act your way this way. And then you come to uh, Soto Zen with Dogen in Japan. And uh, he also was struggling with this, uh, this teaching of the, of the Buddha nature. And he couldn't understand. He said, if we, have, if we already have Buddha nature, why should we practice? Buddha, you know, the guy talked about one understanding of Buddha nature is its potential. You have to actualize the potential. But it was a whole other school that said it's not potential. There's a real thing inside of you that's covered over. That you really are a Buddha, but you just don't know it. And so Dogen said, well, if I'm already a Buddha, then why should I practice? And so he then, his solution to that was to say that... um, we don't practice to become a Buddha. We practice to express our Buddhahood. And that uh, sitting, meditation, zazen, chanting, bowing, doing the different things, those are all the enactment of what a Buddha does. And so we're not, we're, we're, we're being a Buddha in doing those. We're not in the process of becoming a Buddha. And 
this, and this emptiness teaching is kind of in the background of all this because things are not essentially one way. They're, they're seen as being malleable and fluid. It's possible then to, uh, you know, it's not a matter of substance, it has to, it's a matter of functioning, how you act. And so in Soto Zen, it's how you act that's important, not what you understand, not what, you, what your insight is. And, uh, and the kind of idea of being liberated from clinging and attachment kind of falls in the background because that's not that interesting to them anymore. What's interesting is this kind of cosmic presentation or expression or ex- of, of awakening or cosmic functioning of being a Buddha that has this particular form, particular shape. And so they have, like in Soto Zen, they're very particular, for example, exactly how you sit when you sit and meditate. You're supposed to sit in full lotus and sit in a very particular form and shape because that's the form and shape of a Buddha. And when you enact and take that shape and form, you then become a Buddha. Or you are a Buddha. Expresses your expresses your Buddhahood. It's a beautiful, uh, Dogen's practice is quite beautiful, this idea of expressing something as opposed to attaining something that we're expressing something that's deep inside rather than trying to become something that we're not. And uh, somehow in, the mani- in, the, in, the, in that form, it frees up a certain kind of, certain kind of expression, a certain kind of freedom of energy, freedom of feeling, freedom of something. And then I've seen in um, myself as well, a number of people in the Mahayana and Zen tradition who hear about this emptiness, everything's empty. And I've taken it as being kind of a a reason to be dismissive of things. Things don't really count. The phenomenal world, the world of appearances, the world of cause and effect is not really the real world. What's really real is emptiness. What's really world is Dharmakaya. Really, what's really real is the world of liberation, of emptiness, of nirvana. And, but at the core, at the, at the origins of the beginning, kind of the Mahayana, is this very significant teachings of Nagarjuna, where he wants to say that, uh, that um, uh, whatever is empty, that is dependently arisen. Whatever is dependently arisen is empty. Form is empty, emptiness is form. And so there's a, there's a, 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 a place where it's not about, you know, not about, emptiness is not meant to dismiss anything or say that something doesn't count, but rather it's simply to see it clearly for what it is. And in seeing it clearly for what it is, it's something which doesn't have any fixed essence, that it's a process in movement, in flux, that then we can learn to let go. And if we let go completely, then what is this world that we find ourselves in? What is this person we are that we find ourselves as? We're still a person who thinks, still a person who sees and hears and responds, but who are we if we don't cling? And the 
one answer to that question is that we are thus. And so the question for you is, can you feel comfortable? Can you feel complete being thus? Realizing, of course, that in thusness, there's no space for being complete because that's a comparison. You're just thus. This idea of the roles and functioning, that because things are empty, we're empty, that we can function different ways, we can take on different identities. We don't have a fixed identity, so therefore we can take on different identities. Is a part of the tantric tradition. And here's one story, if you allow me to. And, and I like to end with two stories. The abbess once instructed the younger monks and nuns as follows. If a fly lands on the back of an ant, it's a big burden for the ant. If a fly lands on the back of an elephant, it is a small thing for the elephant. You will have many challenges in life. It's up to you whether you face them like an ant or an elephant. And then the idea that emptiness is teaching is not a dismissal of anything, but actually is about an intimacy to this life, here, to really connect to this, what's here. And to see it as empty doesn't mean to dismiss it, but maybe it's to revere it or to respect it or to appreciate this life with greater, greater care and value. Two young men happened to enter the monastery on the same day. One was an aristocrat who had a sense of entitlement. The other was a son of local farmers who had spent his life working on the family farm. I apologize to, to stereotype these aristocrats and local farmers, but that's, that's the kind of genre. This is the genre. <clears throat> During their entrance interview, <clears throat> the abbess asked them why they were becoming monks. The aristocrat said, that he'd come to climb to the highest achievement of human life, to experience the bliss, the glory, and the brilliant light of a liberation. The peasant said, I am a poor and unschooled, I am poor and unschooled, and I have no hope for enlightenment. However, I hope to, see, I hope to, I hope to find the path in the everyday activities of my life. May I see the truth in the food I eat, in the work I do, and in the people I encounter. Within six months, the peasant was graced with the liberation. The aristocrat is still striving on courageously. <laughs> May you see emptiness in, this, in the everyday occurrences and everyday activities of your life, as opposed to seeing that emptiness is something lofty and distant from how you actually live moment by moment. May it help you do so in a way that you don't cling to how things are. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.